0: It is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. Glad to have you here. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything is right there. Many ways to listen live. We recommend our affiliates in your neck of the woods or the Fox News app or Fox Nation. Lots of ways to listen. And then there's the podcast as well. If you can't be here For the full three hours as we air at Guy Benson show is our Twitter handle. It's also our Instagram handle at Guy Benson show. If you want to toss us a follow here is our lineup today. Coming up at the top of the next hour, roughly one hour from right now, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the Senate minority leader, the Republican leader in the upper chamber. He will be here for a lengthy conversation. I have many things to ask him about looking forward to that. Then in our back half of the middle hour, Josh Krossauer will join us to break down from his perspective last night's election results in a number of key states across the country. Primary outcomes that I will get into here, my thoughts in a moment. But Josh will come at it from a more nonpartisan perspective, see what he has to say. In our final hour, another U.S. senator, this time John Cornyn of Texas. I think over the course of the first four shows of the week, we've had 4% of the U.S. Senate on this show. So maybe we should try to get at least one or two more, build that percentage up, Christine, as I am booking here on the fly. But that's the lineup: McConnell, Krasauer and Cornyn here today. Let's talk about last night. There are a few different results that I want to talk through. And sort of sink my teeth into, let's start with a couple quick ones. Missouri, there is a Senate race there, and it was highly anticipated. This is a red state that has only gotten redder in recent cycles. It used to be one of those really close battlegrounds, and it has gotten more and more Republican. But there was this threat to the Republican-held Senate seat that will be up in November because the former governor, disgraced governor, Eric Greitens was running for the seat, and he had, I mean, just luggage surrounding him. If you want to talk about political baggage, personal scandals, political financial scandals, allegations from his ex-wife of domestic abuse that are credible, just an absolute mess. But in a very crowded primary, felt like there were 12 people running for that seat. Greitens, with name recognition— and some money and all of that, he was able to shoot up to the head of the pack in the polling. Not by a lot. His support was not strong. It was still low. But with that many people running, there was at least a real threat that he could become the nominee. And then the Republicans would be in a dilemma because that's a seat that Democrats maybe conceivably all of a sudden could win. So they'd have to spend a lot of money in Missouri We talked about this race on this program at least two or three times leading up to it. And I was basically begging voters in Missouri, Republican voters, don't go with Greitens. That needs to be a safe seat that Republicans don't need to play in. Greitens would make it competitive instantly if he were the nominee. So the outcome last night, after a trolley non-endorsement from Donald Trump, Trump put out an endorsement. Yesterday, a statement saying that he endorses Eric in all capital letters. Now, Eric Greitens was the guy I was just talking about. Then there's Eric Schmidt, who's the state AG, who is also running for Senate as one of the front runners. And there was even a third guy named Eric on the Republican side running in that race. So it was an endorsement of three people. And both of the top three Eric's took that joking endorsement as a real one and touted Trump's support. You know, in the 11th hour. And then Eric Schmidt, the AG, then moved forward and won. He was already trending ahead. There had been a lot of money spent against Greitens, just warning GOP voters, saying this could be an anchor around us all. We don't want to return this man To public office, we don't want him at the top of the ticket for the party. And enough Republican voters said, "Okay, yeah, let's not mess with that again." Eric Schmidt, it is, and he ended up winning close to last time I checked, a few minutes ago, forty-six percent of the vote with Greitens, south of twenty percent. So it wasn't close. So that is a sigh of relief for National Republicans in Missouri. Meanwhile, out in Washington State, Tiffany Smiley. Is an energetic young mother, a Republican candidate who wants to beat Patty Murray, the incumbent Democrat out in the Pacific Northwest. They have this interesting kind of weird system out there like they have in California where it's a top two jungle primary where a bunch of people in all different parties can run. And then there's a primary election yesterday. The top two finishers then move on to effectively a runoff election in the general. So Patty Murray was in first place, the incumbent Democrat. Tiffany Smiley won easily second place, and that will be the general election matchup. We mentioned a while back that the Murray campaign is worried enough about Tiffany Smiley and her appeal that they've actually invested a lot of early money attacking Smiley and running ads promoting Murray in a very blue state early in a cycle. I guess they are... Convinced that at least there's a chance that it could get competitive enough that they want to start going on defense and offense earlier than a lot of people were expecting. That raised some eyebrows. There was a story this week that national Republicans are planning to pour some resources and plow some resources into that race. It's still, I think, relatively uh, sort of a long shot for the Republicans. But Smiley is appealing and Murray is – Just a go-along Democrat, which is what I think maybe a lot of Washington voters want, right? They watch the deterioration of Seattle, for example, and they think to themselves, good, yes, more of this, thank you. Because they are very, very liberal in King County and that huge population center. A lot of the rest of the state is saying, no, thank you. Let's make a change. The question is, is the math there potentially for Republicans in a big enough red wave? Perhaps the answer is yes. So we'll keep an eye on Tiffany Smiley out there. Also, two of the 10 Republicans in the House who voted to impeach Donald Trump in the second impeachment. Jamie Herrera, Butler and Dan Newhouse. There were only 10 of them who voted yes on impeachment on the House side in January of 2021. And you look at those 10. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, six of them have retired. They're just not seeking reelection. They saw the writing on the wall. They are backing away from politics. Liz Cheney has her primary coming up. She is widely expected to get throttled in Wyoming, and it's likely that she is going to lose. There are three people who voted yes on impeachment who appear to have survived their primaries, two of them. Last night in Washington State, Butler, Herrera-Butler and Newhouse. Now, they could have both benefited from this jungle primary type scenario, but they are both on track, it appears, because it's mail-in voting. It takes a while to get all the ballots in and to count them. But it looks like they are both on track to win their primaries and will be heavy favorites in the general election as well. There was one other guy in California who won his primary after voting yes on impeachment, but he's in— a newly more Democratic district. So it'll be a a tough general, I think, for him. So that's just an interesting side note. A couple little races to talk about and to bring to your attention. The bigger focus has been on Michigan and Arizona. And then also in Kansas, they had that abortion vote that I'll get to here a little bit later on this hour. Let's talk about Michigan and Arizona, as we move forward, I have a lot of thoughts on the results that we know, the results that are still coming in, the Democrats meddling in some of the success they seem to have had, and the Trump factor as we head toward a general election. I will start getting into all of that as soon as we come back. I want to take a break, and we will jump in feet first on some of these controversial races as soon as we come back to The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
0: I'm Guy Benson. We're back. As we walk through last night's primaries, and I think that they are consequential, which is why we're devoting so much time to them. Let's go to Michigan. In the governor's race, Tudor Dixon was a businesswoman. Then she was a conservative media personality. She had the backing of Betsy DeVos. And that was just an absolute mess of a Republican primary. Because, I don't know if you heard about this, some of the top candidates, the leading Republican candidates for governor, were disqualified from the ballot because they didn't have enough valid signatures. So a lot of people, there was a law enforcement figure that people were all excited about. He's going to go up against Gretchen Whitmer, the governor there, and then he didn't qualify. And that was true of another self-funding businessman. So kind of the top tier, at least the perceived A-team, not in the game by the I guess, their own campaign missteps and dysfunction so then it was on to this free for all of the next group of people. Tudor Dixon. I just saw her on Fox News Sunday. I think she did pretty well. She had the backing of Betsy DeVos. And then late last week, President Trump swooped in and gave her his endorsement. She seemed to be leading the pack in a lot of the polls. He put her over the top and then she pulled away and won pretty easily. So she will face Whitmer. And I think it will be tough because Whitmer is well-funded and her approval ratings have rebounded. I still think it's doable. It's winnable. If a wave really builds and it's a significant wave year, Gretchen Whitmer could be beaten. But for now, she is polling significantly ahead of Joe Biden in that state. Then there was the congressional district, the third district that we had been talking about. Peter Meyer, the incumbent, a freshman who is a conservative, smart young guy, a veteran. And he came in right after January 6th, and one of his first votes was on the Trump impeachment, and he voted his conscience, and he voted yes. So Trump, of course, endorsed his opponent, John Gibbs, who used to work for Trump, and also effectively endorsing John Gibbs, the challenger, were the Democrats. The DCCC, the Democratic campaign arm, we talked about this on the show, I wrote about it at town hall They spent a ton of money in this one district to try to boost Gibbs and by default bring down Meyer. Now, it's a redistricted district, so it's a Biden plus eight district now, and Democrats felt like Meyer would have a pretty good chance of holding the district as a Republican, whereas Gibbs would be easier to beat because he's a stop the steal guy, election denier, whatever you want to call him. And, you know, the Democrats are just ready to unload on him as a insurrectionist and all the stuff that they're going to say about John Gibbs, by the way, who happens to be African-American. But before they could do that, they had to get rid of Meyer. The incumbent, the Republican and Meyer, as I've said, did everything the Democrats said he should have done. In putting country over party and voting For Trump's impeachment and defending our democracy and so on and so forth. Democrats said this has to transcend politics, but for them, it never does. So Meyer did in their mind the right thing, and I would agree a lot of that was in this one realm, the right thing. And then Democrats set about immediately weaponizing that right thing against him, which I have called party over country. That's the Democrats approach. And ultimately, the Democrats listen to this. The Democrats in this Michigan district spent more to boost John Gibbs, the challenger, than John Gibbs did in his own campaign. The Democrats were effectively the the bankroll. They were the bank. For the John Gibbs campaign. And they weren't Promoting him as an election denier. I think this is important. Now, look, there are some Republicans in that district, I'm sure, who don't think Trump lost and they don't like the fact that Meyer voted for impeachment and they were ready to go for John Gibbs for that reason. But I think there were also a lot of people who are just pro Trump voters in Michigan. And that's how the Democrats portrayed John Gibbs in their ads. And they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars. John Gibbs, a strong conservative, a strong Trump supporter. Look at him here working with Ben Carson. Look at how he's a conservative on immigration and education. We played the quote-unquote attack ad that the Democrats are running against Gibbs to help him. They're like, look at this conservative who believes in patriotic education and border security. They were painting him, presenting him, quote, fake attacking him as sort of a mainstream, normal, pro-Trump conservative. So when you have that, and I think there's a lot of Republican voters who are sick of being called racists at every turn. They're like, oh, here's an attractive black guy who's a conservative. The Democrats are attacking him. We like that. Let's go for him. So you had a group of people who were like committed Trumpists who were mad at Meyer and they were going to vote on the merits because they want a stop the steal candidate. There's another group I would imagine who were pulled to John Gibbs because of the Democrats manipulations. And then Meyer held his own but ended up losing. He got about 48% of the vote, a little more. Gibbs with 98 or so percent of the vote in. John Gibbs won with just shy of 52% of the vote. So it was close. All of this spending made a difference. And I've tweeted about this last night and into today. And I've been extremely critical of the Democrats and their abject cynicism and hypocrisy of their indignant talk about the Republican democracy and saving everything and all these people being threats and then what they're doing, they're putting their money not where their mouth is. The exact opposite and Pelosi defending it saying, "Ah, well, you know, you got to win. We'd love a healthy Republican Party, but let's uh, try to spend our money to make sure that they don't have that so we can beat them. And in a close race where that spending very well could have made a difference, yes, I'm angry about that as someone who is rooting for Peter Meyer. I'm angry that the Democrats did that in such a cynical and hypocritical way. I'm also just disappointed that it worked with just over half of the Republicans. I mean, 48-plus percent of the Republicans in the district didn't fall for it or didn't want this, but just over half did. And that's disappointing to me. I'm not going to sit here and attack John Gibbs voters. I actually hope he wins the election against the Democrat because I would love the Democrats to reap that. I think they would have earned that. They picked their guy, and I hope he beats them. I do. They asked for it. They've asked for this matchup, and now I hope they lose. But I've had people coming after me like, oh, God, you're just attacking the Democrats because you don't want to admit that it's the Republicans who are really at fault, the Republican voters. Look, I can have a difference of opinion. With some of my fellow Republicans, I can also – or I'm, I'm more of a conservative than a Republican – I can also say, look, I think it was a bad call. I think we need to look less backwards, stop talking about conspiracy theories in 2020, and look forward instead. That's my approach to things, and I don't think having these you know, sort of Trump 2020-obsessed you know, election deniers is a healthy thing for the Republican Party or for the country. And when a lot of Republicans go out and vote in the opposite direction, yes, it is frustrating to me. It gets even more frustrating when the Democrats who say one thing then come in and spend a truckload of money to make my position harder to sell to Republicans. And they do it only for the purpose of fleeting political gain. It's just a game to them, even though they pretend it's all about the future and survival of the country. They don't believe it. Their actions betray it. Let's talk about Arizona and last night when we come back.
2: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Hopscotching across the country as we analyze last night's primary election results. We've covered a number of states. Let's head out to Arizona, as we remind you, back on The Guy Benson Show, that our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is always free. And I hope that you understand that when I'm giving you my analysis and my opinion, I recognize sometimes... That there are lots of people in this audience who disagree with me on certain things. I'm comfortable with that. I hope you're comfortable with that. What I don't want to do is sit here and play a cartoon character on the radio to tell you what I think you want to hear. I hope that's not what you want out of this show. If that's what you want, maybe this isn't the show for you. Because I'm going to tell it the way I see it, call balls and strikes. I might be wrong. I'm not like this perfect impartial umpire. I can just tell you where I stand, what I believe and why. So that brings us to Arizona. And the Trump endorsed top of the ticket candidates both won. Well, at least for now, one of them has been declared the winner. The other one is leading. Let's start on the Senate side. Blake Masters, who was a longtime buddy of billionaire Peter Thiel, He was in this race, kind of seen as something of a long shot. He's a neophyte. He's never run for office before. Young guy, young family. I've met him. Smart. Interesting guy. He got the Trump endorsement and in a crowded pack, then surged ahead, not by a lot, but by enough. So he had roughly 35 percent of the vote when you've got a lot of people splitting that pie. That was enough for Blake Masters. He is the nominee for the Republicans. He will face Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is the Democrat. Gabby Gifford's husband is the astronaut. They talk about him being an astronaut constantly. Maybe they'd rather talk about him being in outer space as opposed to in the U.S. Senate voting with Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer close to 100 percent of the time. Occasionally, he puts out a little press release to make it seem like he's independent. Uh, But he's not. He is a rubber stamp for this president who is extremely unpopular in the state of Arizona, and Blake Masters will be a very different kind of senator. Now, again, he's new to the process. The Democrats are sharpening their knives to come after him. They're going to say, look at these comments that he's made in the past. Look at something that he said about Social Security that they're going to use to try to scare senior citizens. They are ready to dump tens of millions of dollars onto Blake Masters' head. And we'll see if he can hold up under that scrutiny and under those attacks from a political machine. Chuck Schumer is going to pull out all the stops to protect Mark Kelly. And Blake Masters uh, needs to be ready. And so that's going to be a big race, I think a winnable race for the Republicans. But the Democrats, in their minds, they think they can hold the seat, even though Biden is so unpopular in Arizona. Now, over on the governor side, it's still too close to call. It hasn't been declared yet, but it was an interesting battle between, on one hand, a woman named Carrie Lake and, on the other hand, Karen Taylor Robson. Carrie Lake had the backing of Donald Trump. Robson had the backing of Pence and Doug Ducey, the sitting governor. Ducey, by the way... Seemed to be getting ready to run for Senate. I think he would win that Senate race against Mark Kelly easily. But Trump was attacking Ducey so often that he scared Ducey out of the race and Ducey decided, you know what, I don't need this. And he's walking away from public office. So this was kind of like this proxy fight. On the direction of the party who they were going to nominate for governor, this is a state where Biden won, where both. Senate seats are now held by Democrats and where the Democrats hope that even in a red year, they might be able to come back and win, pick up the governorship of Arizona. Now, Carrie Lake is going, if she hangs on, she's up by two points right now. The numbers are still coming in, but she leads by about 12,000 votes. I've seen some of the analyses saying it's unlikely that she's going to lose that lead. So let's just say that Carrie Lake ultimately is the nominee. I think that is very likely. There's a few interesting things about that. Number one, she also has been the beneficiary. We're talking about Michigan and Peter Meyer and his opponent. Carrie Lake has similarly been the beneficiary of Democratic boosting. The Democrats have played in that race, attacking Karen Taylor Robson in an effort to sort of help Carrie Lake. Now, they're not doing that because Kerry Lake is a Democratic donor, which she was for years, donated to Barack Obama not that long ago. They're not supporting Carrie Lake or boosting her in the primary because she had attacked Donald Trump after he won the election and posted a bunch of stuff. Not my president promoting anti-Trump protests because she did that, too. She was a news anchor. This was a journalist who was a leftist. And a Democratic donor and a Trump critic who just on a dime decided to become a conservative Republican who is all in on the stop the steal stolen election thing. And that apparently was enough to get Trump's endorsement. And she appears to have won the nomination. Now, I'm going to talk about that race in just a second. But can I make one point? And I hate relitigating 2020 I don't like to do it on this show. I think it's a waste of time in a lot of ways. I want to look forward. I'm afraid that we're going to be doing a lot of looking backward because that's what Carrie Lake has premised her campaign on in Arizona. And it's what Donald Trump constantly wants to do. Trump won't stop talking about 2020 and pretending that he was robbed. And so occasionally some of us have to talk about it and push back. And I understand there are a lot of people who think I'm wrong. I would say, look at, All of the court cases, all of the presentations in court made by Trump's own lawyers where they could not prove anywhere close to enough fraud that would have changed the election in any of the states, let alone several of them that would have been needed to change the ultimate outcome. It just wasn't a thing. In a lot of cases, they had the opportunity to present the case on fraud, and they just passed. They're like, we're not even going to make that argument in front of courts. Now, one of the things and actually, let me make one more caveat here. I agree that the pandemic election of 2020 had a lot of weird stuff with rules getting changed and all this mail in stuff all of a sudden and mailing ballots to a bunch of people. And it was all done because there was this huge pandemic going on. That was still what the fall of 2020 early ish days. It was a very weird black swan event. So there were some things that happened that I think were sketchy and legally dubious. With rules getting changed too late in the process, I didn't like that, which is why, and you know this if you listen to the show, I have been as outspoken as anyone in in favor, for example, of the Georgia election law to try to clean some of that stuff up and restore some confidence in the process and say, no, we're not going to make permanent all this unusual, temporary, they told us. Pandemic era voting stuff. We're not going to make that all permanent. And it's not voter suppression to say so. And they demagogued and they lied, and we ripped them to shreds on this show because it was deceitful demagoguery. And we went after the Democrats and Stacey Abrams and Major League Baseball and these, war, these woke corporations. And we explained that when you actually looked at the voting in Georgia this primary season, Turnout went way up. There was no suppression. It was their own version of a big lie. I've been very clear on that, very consistent on that. So I don't have a problem with some of the critiques of the administration of the 2020 election. That's also different than was the whole thing stolen. And one of the things that got a lot of people suspicious, and Trump was beating the drum on this, on election night, you remember this, right, 2020, In Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, Trump was up pretty comfortably, it looked like. It's like, oh, here we go again. The blue wall is crumbled again and Trump's going to get reelected. And then overnight, a bunch of ballots came in and they overwhelmingly went for Biden and he went over the top and then Trump lost those states. And people were like, wow, that is fishy. And you had all these stories flying around and rumors and allegations. The reason that that happened, it was called the Red Mirage, was because of the weird thing with all the mail-in ballots, this unprecedented number of mail-in ballots. Trump was attacking mail-in ballots, so Republicans generally were all going to vote on Election Day in person. That was going to be their approach because that's what Trump was saying. Democrats, on the other hand, were all about the mail-in ballots. Remember when they were like chaining themselves to, to mailboxes? They were trying to tell us like the post office was going to get completely, you know, like blown up by Donald Trump, that whole weird fetish thing they had for the post office for a few weeks. (laughs) So they were all rah-rah about mail-in voting. The way that the law was written in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, by Republican legislatures, by the way, was that. The early and mail-in votes could not start to get counted and processed until Election Day. And because that's a lot more work for these poll workers to open envelopes, to look and verify signatures in some cases and go through that whole process, those results were going to take longer to report, whereas the actual you know, voting machines, the Election Day votes, those were going to get tabulated much more quickly and report first. So the red mirage was... People more inclined to vote on Election Day were Republicans. So Trump had good numbers in those early returns. Then in came the mail stuff, which came trickling in because it took longer to count and they weren't allowed by statute to count until starting on Election Day. That started coming in overnight, and those obviously were going to be much bluer ballots. Those are going to be Democratic ballots, which is how the red mirage was overcome by that sort of blue wave In that big batch. And a lot of people thought that was illegitimate and really suspicious and sketchy or what have you. I would just point out that in Arizona last night, the opposite happened. Robson, who's the more sort of mainstream traditional Republican conservative, her supporters were more open to the early voting and to the mail in stuff. Whereas Carrie Lake supporters, because of this artifact of 2020, they were much more in the Trump mindset. You vote on the machine on Election Day. And so Robson had a significant lead, it appeared. This was sort of, you know, a mirage, again, just in the other direction within the Republican primary. She was up eight or nine points throughout most of the evening into the wee hours of the morning. I went to bed probably at two o'clock in the morning. She was up by eight points. Then I woke up today, boom, Carrie Lake has taken the lead. It's not because Carrie Lake had a giant, you know, election stolen for her. It's because under Arizona's counting, the early votes get counted first. So they report first, which benefited Robson. Then the day of election numbers come in next, and those skewed heavily to Lake, and she now appears to be in position to win. So I know a lot of people would point at, what happened in the upper Midwest in 2020 and saying that overnight, just all these ballots just happened to show up. Well, in reverse, that is what we saw last night in Arizona. And it benefited Carrie Lake, who calls herself the MAGA mama, who is one of the top election deniers out there in the country right now. She benefited from the same effect that put Biden over the top, just in reverse in 2022, last night and this morning. I just wanted to point that out. I think it's an important Illustration of what happened in 20 and what happened last night. And I'm not doubting that Carrie Lake legitimately has the lead in the race. I would not support her. I would not be a fan of hers. However, she's actually pretty smooth. She's combative in interviews. She's well spoken. She was a news anchor for a very long time. She's attractive. She has tapped into a large element of the Republican base. And you know, if she runs in the general the way she ran in the primary, she is going to be a very, very aggressive fighter against her Democratic opponent, who's a statewide office holder. I believe this, she's a secretary of state, this Democrat, who's way out there on the left on a bunch of issues. She's not quite AOC, but she's, she's getting out toward the squad on some of this stuff on abortion, although they're all radicals on abortion now. On immigration, which is a big issue out in Arizona, I think Carrie Lake is going to have a lot of ways to come after uh, Ms. Hobbs, her opponent. I think it's Katie Hobbs. If Lake, in fact, hangs on and wins, I think she's going to. And then it will be this really fascinating dynamic. Will the Trump endorsed hardcore, you know, punch him up, stop the steal, MAGA Republican nominee Carrie Lake win in a red year? against quite a liberal Democrat or does Arizona say we're actually going to go even bluer now they've been trending purple are we going to take a step even more in the blue direction we'll find out and I think those will be some really aggressive intense fights out in the desert on the Senate side and on the governor's side and we will be watching both of them with great interest I'll take one more break this hour when we come back Kansas the abortion referendum. Boy, is the media excited. The media is just doing cartwheels that the pro abortion, pro choice side won in Kansas last night. What does it mean? What doesn't it mean? I'll explain after this on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
0: As we continue on The Guy Benson Show, the media is just beside itself with delight that in Kansas, a public referendum on the ballot on abortion went in the direction of abortion rights. And they are just celebrating and high-fiving all across the press today because it's an issue on which they are extremely biased and really perform the task of activism more than journalism. And this is the outcome that they were rooting for. It wasn't really close. little over 58 percent voting against this measure. And it's actually kind of convoluted. The pro-life position was vote yes, which would sort of undo a state Supreme Court decision on a right to abortion and then pave the way for the legislature to take additional action in restricting abortion. Whereas the pro-choice side and the abortion activism side was vote no and kind of uphold By popular ballot, what the Supreme Court in that state had decided. So it wasn't really a yes or no on any policy. It was just sort of like, do you want to have some abortion protections eliminated? So the pro-life side was yes. The pro-choice side was no. And the no side won 58, 59-ish percent to 41, 42 percent uh, who voted in the other direction. And what happened here, among other things, was the side on abortion rights. They framed this successfully, obviously, as a referendum on a ban. Do you want a sweeping ban to come to Kansas? And we've talked before, I'm pro life. I look at the data a lot. I think that the media wishes that the country were more pro abortion than it is. Americans actually have very complex views on abortion. And Favor By significant margins, meaningful restrictions and limitations on abortion. But while the Democrats radical position is unpopular, the opposite side, a sweeping ban with no or few exceptions, also not terribly popular, even in a place like Kansas. That's how it was framed, what this battle was about, even though I think that's a bit misleading. And that's why you had a big Democratic turnout in favor of no and a lot of independents and even Republican voters voting no. Because they had in their minds a ban, which was too far. So I think pro-lifers in Kansas need to regroup, figure out what the next strategy would be. Keep in mind what voters are telling them with their votes and adjust accordingly. But the left might over-interpret these outcomes as well. That's my prediction. Mitch McConnell coming up on The Guy Benson Show.
2: The most powerful city in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
0: It's a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. Show. Fox News alert as we get going here. The Dow soaring today, 416 points up in the green, closing at 32,812. Well, we are... Moments away from connecting with Senator Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate. And it's been a very busy chamber over the last couple of days. We had the big brawl over the PACT Act. Only in Washington can you have legislation that has the support of 80-plus senators. I think the final number was 86 who voted yes across the aisle, a bill supported by 86 percent. Of the US Senate go through so much drama and anger and finger pointing and delay. And for reasons that we explained over the last couple of days, and we'll perhaps ask Senator Cornyn about it coming up in the next hour, I think the Democrats saw an opportunity to try to make the Republicans look bad by distorting what they actually believe, what their objections were what amendments they wanted to vote on and say, well, none of that matters. You either vote yes or no. And if you vote even to delay this by a few days, it's because you despise veterans and you want them to die. And you'll have celebrities like Jon Stewart, very happy to come out and make that point over and over again with all the bright lights and all the cameras following him around. And look, I think a lot of people, their heart was in the right place. They wanted these veterans to get health care those that were exposed to these toxic burn pits. Then finally the game playing ended. The majority leader, Chuck Schumer, allowed the votes that he had always said that he would. Those votes occurred and then passage sailed through. Days delayed for no good reason, but some political points were scored, that's for sure. Washington, D.C. at its finest. And with us now is Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the upper chamber He represents the great state of Kentucky. Senator, it's good to have you back. Yes, hold on one second. Oh, that was definitely not Senator Mitch McConnell. I think perhaps uh, his staff had him on hold. I do want to ask him when we do get the senator about this natural disaster in his state these floods that have been really devastating there are people dead and missing i believe we have the senator now senator mcconnell welcome back to the show good to have you if you could just give us an update on the flooding situation in your state what's the latest and how can people help
5: well guy it's uh the worst we've ever had it's been a tough year in kentucky we had uh, tornadoes in western kentucky back in december and now this there are four or five uh, counties in the heart of Appalachia where we have upwards of 30 or more people killed. Uh, we're still finding uh, bodies and uh, it, it's been really an unmitigated disaster. Um, I talked to some of the old timers down there on the phone and they can remember a flood back in the 50s and this was worse than, than that. So. There are places where people can make charitable contributions if they'd like to. And um, thank you for asking. We'll get past this, but it's been a horrendous problem.
0: Absolutely. And people can Google for various causes they can contribute to. Perhaps the Red Cross is usually very good on this type of thing, the American Red Cross. Senator, we just spent the first hour looking back at last night, these races across the country. Two of particular interest, I would imagine, to you, perhaps three, the Senate primaries in Arizona, Missouri, and also out in Washington state. What do you think of the Republican slate of nominees that emerged? Blake Masters in Arizona, Eric Schmidt in Missouri, and Tiffany Smiley out in Washington. What's your, your general assessment of those three candidates that your party is going to go into battle with in November?
5: Well, I think the outcome in Missouri was particularly important. One of the candidates competing uh, had major flaws, and the candidate was not successful. Attorney General Eric Smith, who did win the nomination to me looks like a uh, first-class electable nominee, Tiffany Smiley in Washington State, is outstanding, probably doing the best job of any non-incumbent republican candidate in the country of raising money and making a good first impression and with regard to arizona it wasn't close on the senate race uh... mark kelly is the incumbent has raised a ton of money is very competitive and i think we're going to have a close uh... Fought, uh a big fight and a close outcome in, in the arizona senate race <clears throat>
0: I want to talk about another big story on Capitol Hill this week, the surprise announcement. I guess this was late last week at this point. Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer, that they had this agreement, not just an agreement, but a whole bill that they'd written, which is Build Back Better Light or BBB 2.0, whatever you want to call it. A lot of tax increases, a lot of new spending. First question, it seemed like it caught a lot of people off guard, including a number of Democrats like Kirsten Cinema. You on the Republican side had just helped pass the CHIPS Act, which you had sort of drawn some lines in the sand about. That moment passed. Maybe some of your leverage was then gone, and it wasn't subtle. A few hours later, they spring this surprise announcement on you. Uh, Were you shocked by that? Do you feel – a lot of people give you credit, and I think it's deserved being a really sharp tactician. Did you feel like maybe Manchin and Schumer got the better of you, maybe rolled you on this one?
5: No, I don't think so. I mean, because they could they could do this bill if they got their act together. wholly aside from what we do, we we have no ability whatsoever to to thwart a reconciliation bill. If the Democrats get their act together, they can pass it. What was surprising was that Joe Manchin basically went back on everything he'd been saying publicly about what he would not do. Uh, they stuck this phony label on this uh, on this Manchin deal calling it uh, an inflation uh, bill. It uh, doesn't do that, has zero impact on inflation long term and actually increases inflation over the next two years. He insisted that it reduced the deficit and we just got a CBO score saying it, it actually increases the deficit over the next five years. Uh, this bill was unrelated to the chips bill. This is a bill they could always have passed at any time if they had gotten their act together. And the key to getting their act together was to get Manchin back on board. And he ended up signing off on a bill that basically uh, goes against almost everything he had said, both publicly and to us on the floor of the Senate, 300,000-plus billion-dollar new taxes, on American jobs, uh, particularly falling hard on American manufacturers, a catalog of tax hikes and green boot doggles Democrats have wanted for years, they just stuck a new name on. And listen to this 80,000 new IRS agents to go after middle class families and small businesses. No, the surprise was completely unrelated to the CHIPS bill, the surprise was that Manchin would basically reverse his position on so many different things and agree to this kind of deal.
0: Now, Manchin has given a few interviews, including on our network at Fox, saying that it's just not true. It's a lie. What Republicans, including you specifically, are saying that there are new taxes or tax increases in the bill. I don't understand where he's coming up with that because you just look at the bill. Of course, there are tax increases in there on manufacturers and businesses, but he's trying to say this has nothing to do with taxes, not one penny of new taxes. Do you have any clue what he means by that or or what he's trying to convey with that?
5: What he's doing, Guy, he's saying no new tax rate increases. That's true. But what they have done is shift the burden to people who actually pay the taxes, by eliminating some of the legitimate preferences, particularly that manufacturers have. And so so the question is, where does the tax burden go? It's playing with language. The, The fact of the matter is the tax burden will add $300 billion of new tax burdens. In other words, people who actually pay it on American jobs. Do you follow me?
0: Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Yeah, the rates don't change. That's true. The rates don't change, but that's not the only definition of a tax increase. If you're raising taxes on businesses, which is what they're doing unequivocally, that is a tax increase. And when you're counting on new revenue from that tax increase, that's a tax increase. I I mean you're being, I think, very generous calling it playing games with words. I think he's sort of engaged in some misinformation because he's not saying – there are no tax rate increases. He's saying there are no tax increases at all, which is just demonstrably false, on top of all the other issues that you've raised on the deficit, on inflation, even though they call it you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. that That is quite uh, a turn of flipping the true meaning of language around on its head uh, as they're trying to do with the word recession right now over at the White House. Does this whole deal that Manchin made with Schumer – does it change your opinion of Joe Manchin at all?
5: Well, he's certainly not been a, uh, shall I say, consistent, uh, not even recently consistent, because this deal that he cut with Schumer steps on virtually everything he said, both publicly and privately, as recently as in the, within the last couple of weeks. Um, So it's stunning to watch him try to explain all these reversals of positions in such a short period of time. Um, You know, Joe, in the end, got there on the $1.9 trillion so-called rescue package last year that created 40-year inflation. And now that we are, by definition, in the middle of a recession, they want to raise taxes. That's the one thing you don't do in the middle of a recession.
0: Which is something he said in the past. You should never do it. Now he's doing it. He also finally admits that the rescue plan was a mistake. He said at the time it would not increase inflation. Of course it did, but he's saying we're not going to make the same mistake this time. I guess that remains to be seen. Last point on this bill and this this deal, this package, I asked you if you think that you got rolled by the Democrats. Let me turn that around a little bit. Do you think that Manchin is going to get rolled by Democratic leadership because some of the major concessions that he said that he won on permitting reform, on pipelines, pro-fossil fuel stuff, he's very excited about those things. But they're not actually in this bill. They would have to come in a later bill, and the Democrat leadership, they're telling him, don't worry, we're going to make it happen, we're going to attach it to must-pass stuff. But once that leverage is gone and they've gotten his vote for what all the progressives want – do you think there's a chance that the concessions that they're promising him suddenly evaporate?
5: Yeah, I think it's overwhelming likelihood. Look, there's no way we could get rolled on a reconciliation bill. A reconciliation bill doesn't have any Republican support to begin with. Right. The the way they do this is to finally get their act together. And the reason they were able to get their act together is Manchin basically publicly reversed everything he's been saying both publicly and privately the last two weeks. So this is not a question of snookering or Republicans. Republicans aren't going to vote for this anyway. This is a question of whether or not they can get their act together. And Manchin basically shifted position on so many different things uh, to cut this deal. And and, and um, that presumably is how they will end up passing this with this 50-50 vote with uh, Kamala Harris in the chair.
0: There was a vote in the House Recently, last month, on same-sex marriage, I thought it was an interesting bill, the way it was written. Full disclosure, I support it. But there's one tweak to the language I think would be reasonable, and we've talked to a, a number of members on this show about that. But there were questions about whether there would be enough Republicans to get to 60 votes to help the Democrats pass this same-sex marriage bill, get to 60. The rumors were, the reports were, that there might be 10 or more Republicans – Uh, There's a couple who are on the record against it, others who are on the record in favor of it, others who aren't quite sure yet. Do you have an opinion on that? Do you think that that bill should come up for a vote? If it does, would you vote yes? Would you vote no? Your thoughts?
5: Yeah, I can can only speak for myself. I've not made a decision on it yet. And uh, if we, in fact, have the vote, I'll announce my decision at that particular time.
0: Okay. You also led a letter this week, 26 Senate Republicans, doing something that you don't really do very often in public, which is to full throatedly defend House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And it's like, OK, wow, where's this coming from? It was about her trip to Taiwan where it seemed like the White House was pressuring her not to go. Of course, the, the Chinese communists were uh, saber rattling like crazy. Just give us quickly, Senator, less than a minute, your thoughts on Speaker Pelosi's trip and why you wanted to put that in writing, supporting that move of, of her journey over there.
5: Yeah, I think she did the right thing. Um, Not something I would (laughs) routinely be saying about the speaker. I think she did the right (laughs) thing. I don't think the Chinese ought to be able to dictate who visits Taiwan. And um, I'm glad she went. I think it was important for her to do it. And um, that's another way we push back against Xi. The other way is to beat the Russians in, in Ukraine because the Prime Minister of Japan said, if you want to send Xi a message, as Prime Minister Japan said, if you want to send Shia a message, beat Putin in Ukraine.
0: Mitch McConnell of Kentucky is the Senate Republican leader. Senator, we always appreciate your time here. Thank you very much for making some time for us. Thanks, Scott. That is Mitch McConnell on The Guy Benson Show. We will step aside and come right back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back and we bring you a Fox News alert and a very sad story. This is breaking minutes ago. Republican Congresswoman Jackie Walorski of Indiana has been killed in a car crash. It was earlier today. This from the Elkhart County Sheriff's Office. Walorski was in an SUV traveling southbound on a highway when it was hit head on by another car. Just after 12.30 p.m. in the middle of the day, all three occupants in one of the cars, including the congresswoman, plus her district director and her communications director, all died as a result of their injuries. The sole passenger in the other car was also pronounced dead at the scene. It sounds like an awful crash. You sort of wonder how something like this could happen. They were hit head on. Going. One way down a highway in the middle of the day? Wolerski was just 58 years old, and the staffers who died, Zachary Potts, was 27 and Emma Thompson, 28. Just gut-wrenching. Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, tweeting this, It is with a heavy heart that I am sharing this statement from the office of Congresswoman Jackie Wolerski. Quote, Dean Swihart, Jackie's husband, was just informed by the Elkhart County Sheriff's Office that Jackie was killed... In a car accident this afternoon. She has returned home to be with her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please keep her family in your thoughts and prayers. We will have no further comment at this time. She represented that district since 2012. My understanding was Jackie Walorski was very well liked on the Hill, a young member. And just like that, She's gone, along with those two young staffers. Just an awful story, and our heart goes out to her family, her staff. Just the jarring, horrible news that you never want to get. RIP. We'll break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through the week and the show... On this Wednesday, it's The Guy Benson Show, guybensonshow.com for the free podcast at Guy Benson Show on social media. Joining us again is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, hello.
3: Guy, great to be back on the show.
0: Well, I spent a fair amount of time in the first hour walking through the results from last night. I want to get your take on some of them. Just starting quickly with a word on Missouri, I feel like that Senate race just feels like a heavy sigh of relief among national Republicans who were trying to figure out what the heck they were going to do in the event that Eric Greitens were the nominee. He was leading for a while, took a real hit in the polls recently as the attacks mounted against him. That is no longer a headache for them, and it seems like that seat is now pretty safe, yes?
3: That's right, Guy. It's a seat that should never have been in play it's a, it's a race where former governor Eric Greitens, a disgraced uh, candidate, someone who had all kinds of ethical and, and, and personal baggage, uh, which should never have been in the race, but he was, and it took millions of dollars in an ad campaign. to to remind Missouri voters about why he shouldn't be elected. It turned out he finished in third place, far behind uh, Eric Schmidt, the the nominee. But now that Schmidt, a more traditional Republican, is the nominee, Missouri is, is such a Republican state, there's very little chance it'll be competitive in the general election.
0: All right, let's shift now to Arizona, because this is a state that I think a lot of people are watching quite closely. It's one that Biden narrowly won in 2020, both Senate seats are now occupied by Democrats. It is a red state that has become a purple state. And depending on what happens in November, it could have a bit of a blue tint. Maybe not. It could regain some of its redness. We're going to see what happens in the general. But last night, it was the two Trump-backed candidates in the two big statewide races. On the Senate side, Blake Masters. On the gubernatorial side, Kerry Lake. They both won. I think the Senate race was... Pretty crowded. Masters was expected to win by roughly the margin that he did. Carrie Lake has not officially been declared the winner yet, but she looks like she will hang on. But it was close in this interesting proxy battle between Trump and on the other side, Pence and the sitting governor, Doug Ducey. It was at least as of a few hours ago, last I checked the numbers, roughly a two point race. What do you make of those outcomes and what lies ahead in these general elections on these two marquee races?
3: It's a tale of two types of races in Arizona. You got the primary where a lot of if not all of the Trump endorsed Republicans won or are close to winning, but then you've got a general election in a state that's becoming much more competitive. It's a real purple state these days. And swing voters, independents, suburban voters are gonna gonna make the difference in, in the general election. So there, there's real worry among Republicans that someone like Blake Masters, who, you know, any Republican in Arizona in this type of political year should do quite well in a purple state. But Blake Masters has a long record of making controversial comments. He came out during this campaign supporting the privatization of Social Security. Arizona's got a lot of seniors that may not like that idea. You got a lot of controversial comments. He's you know, praise the Unabomber as a as an underrated thinker at, at one point. Uh, those are the tit- – oh, his comments on abortion, too, also a little bit to the right of where most Arizona voters are. So there's a real question about someone like Masters. Is he ready for political prime time? Will those positions to the right of the, the, the moderate voters that make or break elections in Arizona cost – would that cost the Republican Party badly? Carrie Lake, another, another good example. If she wins this nomination, uh, she's going to go up against the secretary of state, uh, in, in, in Arizona from from, from last election, uh, Hobbs. And look, that's going to be a competitive race. But again, this is a race that Republicans have held. Uh, governor, Republicans have largely won a lot of these big governor's races in Arizona. Jan Brewer, Doug Ducey recently. But uh, because Carrie Lake is a nominee, it's going to give Democrats a really uh, important opening in a very important battleground state. So look, Trump has won the battle. He won the battle in Arizona, at least in these big primaries. But the war is still going to be fought in the November general election, and Democrats are as bullish as ever that they can win some of these important races.
0: Yeah. On the other side of it, you've got Mark Kelly, the incumbent senator, who's just a Biden-Schumer rubber stamp. He's a generic Democrat. He does what the Democrats always ask him to do in terms of his voting record. There's plenty to go after him on that front. And the gubernatorial nominee is pretty fringe on a number of especially social issues on immigration Her position, I think, is out of step with a lot of Arizona. So there will be no shortage of political ammo flying, I think, in both directions. And the question is, in this type of environment, can Carrie Lake win? You know, she'll be pushing the boundaries of what Arizonans might be sort of excited to accept as the governor. But Arizona looks at Washington, D.C., and you look at poll after poll. President Biden's numbers are just dreadful in that state and so maybe the national brand is hung around the neck of these democrats out there in the desert and the republicans could sweep those two races that is also you know conceivable i could imagine republicans winning both of those races or losing both of those races if they lose i think the recriminations within the party are going to be instant and ugly if they win it will be very interesting to see how those two govern i think especially lake given sort of the whole Premise of her campaign being election denial.
3: Yeah. Republicans in this political environment, even weaker Republican candidates can win, especially in a state like Arizona. But boy, I mean, this, these are races that Republicans should win. And I, I think they're at best 50 50 propositions uh, with Carrie Lake and and with Blake Masters. And again, it goes to show in the big, pay, the Democrats, you know, a generic, you said Mark Kelly's sort of a generic Democrat. He goes and follows Biden's lead, which is pretty much the case. But I think Republicans would love to have some generic Republicans who kind of follow the party lead in a lot of these races. The challenge is they've got candidates that are below the generic level that are going to bring some baggage to the ticket. So these are races that they should be winning. These are not races that should be even close in some instances, but they're going to be competitive and they may even be underdogs in otherwise battleground states.
0: Where do you come down, Josh, on this question about Democratic meddling? We've talked about it here on the show where the Democrats have played in Republican primaries. They've pumped millions of dollars into Republican primaries to help boost people that they view as extreme and radical and they want to run against in the general. They've had some success on that front. They have also had a few setbacks where Republican voters rejected what the Democrats wanted, but they helped boost Kerry Lake in Arizona. And in Michigan, they spent a lot of money helping the primary opponent, the challenger, Of Peter Meyer. And that race is lost for Meyer. John Gibbs is the Trump supported Trump supporting stop the steal guy who won by three or four points in that primary last night. Democrats, I saw this statistic, spent more money in that race boosting Gibbs than Gibbs did in his own campaign. The number one funder of John Gibbs was the Democratic Party. And at least from their perspective, they got what they wanted. It has worked. This is a district that is now a D-plus-8 district, so they feel like John Gibbs would lose a general election. And I have been sort of scolded, if not excoriated, on social media over the last 24 hours, mostly by sort of journalists and leftists saying that by criticizing the Democrats as harshly as I have on this, and I did again in the first hour of the show today, I'm letting Republican voters off the hook, or I'm pretending like they have no agency I'm doing nothing of the sort. I understand a Republican doesn't win an election. A Republican doesn't win a primary without Republican votes. I also just feel like if the Democratic Party is going to spend a year and a half telling us that people like John Gibbs and Carrie Lake are very dangerous for democracy and then they boost them or spend money on people like them to try to – Get them to the head of the class in in a Republican primary to knock someone off like Peter Meyer, who, as Democrats would say, or at least would have argued at the time, did the right thing, putting his country over his party. That's their slogan. That's their talking point. Then their money speaks very loudly and tells a very different story. I just feel like I am entitled to feel anger and frustration and disgust at that hypocrisy as a conservative who is trying to move away from the stop the steal stuff. It makes it harder when you're not just trying to convince your fellow conservatives, but you have Democrats in their deep pockets making that process, making that sale more difficult by muddying the waters and backing people that they are eager to turn around and attack as anti-American just as soon as they become the nominee. That's sort of my position in a nutshell. I see there's a tug of war back and forth. Who's to blame? Who should you really be mad at? And I'm curious, as a nonpartisan, how you view it
3: so everyone's to blame i mean i think both of you both sides are right in a sense uh, you know if republicans weren't so enamored with some of these extreme candidates some of these maga candidates we would they would democrats wouldn't be spending money in the first place this would be a moot point so like that is a fair point at the same time look at the results last night in michigan this was not a blowout this was a i believe a three or four point race john gibbs yep. won by the skin of his teeth there's no doubt there's no doubt that the DCCC C money made the difference between elect you know having a, a mainstream Republican who's anti Trump and Peter Meyer versus someone who represents some of some of the worst impulses of of the Maga movement and may certainly lose that seat for Republicans in in November uh you know it, it, Democrats were sort of saying after that ad went up that Meyer was going to lose anyway that you know he was already toast. Uh, clearly not the case clearly not the case last night that he did have meyer did have a bunch of suburban supporters he had his own base in the district it just wasn't enough and look he he he, uh when you when when it's that close and when your opponent has no money that that five hundred thousand dollars that was spent to get gibbs's campaign off the ground essentially the democrats were funding the trump candidate in that district Yeah, no
0: they were his number one funder i mean that's what happened more so than his own campaign i think it speaks for itself and i know Josh, there are some people listening who like Kerry Lake, and they're happy that she won, and John Gibbs. And they're saying, well, you know, why are you talking about blame? We're happy that this happened. I get that. I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying how I feel from where I sit and sort of this fight about what the future of Republican politics looks like and the way the Democrats are going to get involved or not get involved. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Josh, we've got to leave it there this time for now. A lot more primaries to come. And, of course, November is looming A lot of huge races across the country. We'll be watching. You'll be analyzing often right here on The Guy Benson Show. Josh, thank you. Thanks, Guy. And we'll be right back after this.
2: The Guy Benson Show. More next.
0: Back here on The Guy Benson Show, one of the races that we are watching in November is the Florida Governor's Contest down there in the Sunshine State. And most people seem to expect that Governor DeSantis is going to win re-election, probably by a comfortable-ish margin. Florida is typically very close, but he might win, let's say, by mid-single digits or more. Although I have not seen a mainstream media public poll of that race in months, which I find very weird. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. The media is obsessed with DeSantis. They attack him all the time. They poll him versus Trump in a primary hypothetical stuff a few years down the line. They're polling that all the time, and we're reading stories about this survey out of New Hampshire and this survey out of Florida and that survey or that straw poll in Wisconsin or Colorado. A lot of focus on that. Nothing, just crickets on the actual reelection campaign right in front of our faces in Florida, which seems fairly relevant. Maybe they're just bored and they assume he's going to win and that makes them sad so they don't commission polls or something. Maybe they're waiting for the official general election to kick off because there's a late primary in Florida. I just find that weird. Regardless, DeSantis is obviously going to be the Republican nominee for governor. His opponent is TBD. There's a primary on the Democratic side. It looks like Charlie Crist, the former governor. Now, a congressman who's been everything. He's just a chameleon. He believes nothing. He was a conservative Republican governor and then an independent once Marco Rubio beat him in the Senate primary. Then a Democrat because the independent thing wasn't working for him. It's just whatever the guy needs to pursue power and political office It's actually kind of gross. Like if you are a conservative Republican and a liberal Democrat in the span of a decade and a half, As a public figure and a politician, an elected official, it's just sort of like, do you actually have any core principles at all? And the answer with Chris is no, obviously. Then there's Nikki Freed, the agriculture secretary, the only statewide elected Democrat in Florida. And she seems to do everything but her day job. And she's a hyper online, sort of crazy out there conspiracy theorist. She's out there comparing DeSantis to Hitler and not apologizing for it. So clearly they've got a crack squad of excellent potential challengers over there on the Democratic side. But one of them will win their primary when that finally rolls around, and DeSantis is unchallenged on the GOP side, as he should be given the job that he has done down there in that state during the pandemic. His team has amassed an enormous war chest. It was, what, $130 million, last I checked, just for the re-election campaign. Of course, fueling speculation that he might be gunning for another position. And he's flexing some fundraising muscles and some clout ahead of, let's say, 2024. But as I keep saying, whenever I talk about DeSantis in the future, task number one, and I suspect he and his team very much are aware of this and have it front of mind they should – Task number one is to win in Florida and win as big as possible to make a statement, lay down a marker, do something impressive if they can pull that off in November. So even though this is still technically a primary era poll for him because it is a late primary, this is not a general election ad necessarily, de facto it is. The team has put out their first sort of general election style television ad. It's 60 seconds long. It's called Dear Governor, and it features DeSantis sort of driving around from place to place, reading letters that he has gotten from constituents in Florida. Listen to Cut 17. Dear
2: Governor DeSantis, I wanted to write and thank you for working so hard for the
5: citizens of Florida.
0: Dear Governor DeSantis, I've never written a political leader.
5: But I'm writing to express my appreciation for keeping us Floridians free and thriving.
4: A governor who says what he is going to do and then does it.
5: I realize that the right thing is not always the easy thing.
3: Without your leadership, we wouldn't have been able to stay open.
2: Because of you. My child has thrived through this pandemic.
3: The monoclonal antibodies saved my mother's life.
2: I'm
0: 11 years old, and I'm glad I could go to school.
3: Watching you beat back the woke, liberal media makes me so proud to be a Floridian. Freedom to live.
0: Freedom to go to school. Freedom.
3: Freedom. Freedom.
0: Thank you. Thank you Thank you for keeping Florida free. Keep fighting the good fight. So that's, dear governor, effectively the first general election TV ad from Ron DeSantis down in Florida. It's a positive ad highlighting his leadership in Florida during the pandemic, cutting against the grain, against, in some cases, the experts, but not the data. And the results have been what they've been with a huge influx of people moving to that state, with the economic numbers great, the jobs numbers growing. And that's the record he is going to run on. And the juxtaposition is, can you imagine if the Democrats had won that election in 2018, which they were expected to? The polls said they were going to win. The media was rooting super hard for Andrew Gillum. Setting aside all of that guy's personal issues that have emerged since, he would have gone along with the Fauci model. Florida would look very different today under Democratic leadership. And that is argument number one for DeSantis in his reelect. I think it's a very savvy, good ad by the governor and his team. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas is straight ahead. Stay with us.
2: o'clock in the most powerful city in the world washington dc it's time for the guy benson show happy hour sponsored by the finnish long drink finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to america visit thelongdrink.com and now here's your host guy benson
0: it's the happy hour on the guy benson show midway through this week thank you so much for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time, then around the clock, at your fingertips, on demand, totally free of charge on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's at GuyBensonShow. That is our handle. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. I saw golfer Ricky Fowler was posting all about it. He's one of their investors on social media. Him and his long drink and some swag. Good stuff. It is delicious. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they are sold near you. A lot more places now than was even the case back when we first started telling you about The Long Drink, when they first started sponsoring these happy hours at the start of the pandemic. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only and always drink responsibly. With us now is U.S. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas. And, Senator, always great to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Guy. Good to be with you. I want to start with the PACT Act. We talked to Senator Toomey about it earlier in the week. We asked Senator Ernst about it yesterday. They both predicted that it would pass with a big number on a bipartisan basis as long as Republicans got some promised amendment votes. The Democrats had yanked back the promise. Chuck Schumer did so, I think, very cynically to try to seed a narrative that Republicans hate veterans and don't care if they die and don't care about their health care and any of that. And that was a narrative that rolled for a while. And the media dutifully went along, amplifying it. John Stewart was very hostile out there, making his claims. All the Republicans wanted was some votes on amendments, as they had been pledged by the majority leader. They finally got those votes. Toomey's, in my mind, was a worthy vote. It was a worthy amendment, but it failed. And then final passage did happen last night, which is what both Toomey and Ernst had predicted, and the number was huge. Just your reflections on this little mini-Tempest and what lessons you learned from it and what you think the American people need to know about what happened over the last week or so.
4: Well, I guess the first lesson, guys, you can't trust Chuck Schumer when he tells you— going to allow amendments on a bill. Um, that's what happened. Uh, he broke that promise. And uh, when uh, Senator Toomey came forward, what I thought was a common sense amendment to make sure that we could be a little more fiscally responsible in how we provide these services to our veterans, uh, a lot of us thought that would be a, a good, good thing to do. Um, but all of this drama could have been avoided if Senator Schumer had kept his promise originally. I agree with Senator Toomey and Senator Ernst that the final outcome was never in doubt. But there was a lot of drama associated with uh, Schumer taking uh, a week or so to finally deliver on the something he promised and uh, reneged on uh, last week.
0: On the subject of trusting Chuck Schumer, that is what Senator Joe Manchin is now doing, Schumer And the leadership on the Democratic side and apparently the White House as well, they have promised him – Manchin, that is – that if he votes for the big tax and spending bill that he's introduced with Schumer and sort of sprung that on you guys late last week, it's not in this legislation. But down the line, he will get permitting reform. He will get a pipeline approved. And Manchin has said he believes them. If they break their word, there'll be consequences. It's unclear what that means exactly. Do you think that Manchin might be perhaps on the brink of getting rolled by his own party where they get him to vote for a bunch of stuff that they want on the left and then these other ancillary concessions that he's extracted never actually materialize? How realistic is that scenario in your mind?
4: Well, I think you've described what's going to happen, Guy. Uh, He's going to get rolled. Um, Look, Joe Manchin's a nice guy. Everybody likes Joe, but he's done a total flip-flop from where he was earlier on Build Back Broke, or Build Back Better, as they called it back then. And then he's engaged in this secret negotiation with Schumer that does not include other members of the Democratic caucus, including Senator Sinema from Arizona, whose vote is also critical. And um, Joe comes out of this thing basically saying there's no tax increase, even though the Joint Committee on Taxation, the official scorekeeper of Congress, says there is, including on people making as little as $10,000. And he said it won't be, it'll actually reduce inflation when the Penn Wharton study that you've seen actually said, no, it won't reduce inflation. It actually may make it a little worse in the near term. And then you have this really unconscionable wealth transfer, from working american families to wealthy people who can afford to buy electric vehicles courtesy of a $7500 tax credit that people who can't afford to buy those EVs are going to be contributing to so this is a uh, this is a terrible piece of legislation uh, we're we're hoping that uh, it fails and we're going to do our best to help it fail but we're also going to help make sure that there's a transparent amendment process on the floor and uh, hold Democrats accountable.
0: Am I correct in reading and understanding that, to your point that you just made in this bill, a family in a wealthy, let's say, blue state making $299,000 a year, they can get a $7,500 tax credit to buy an electric vehicle subsidized by working class people who cannot come close to affording an electric vehicle?
4: You you nailed a guy. That's exactly right. That's and wild. it gets worse. You, you remember under the, the original Affordable Care Act that subsidies, taxpayer subsidies for health insurance went to people under 400 percent of poverty. That cap has been lifted entirely now so that wealthy people who can afford their own health insurance are now going to be subsidized by the same working class family that's going to be asked to pay for the tax credit for electric vehicles. So uh, this is I mean, I don't know what you call this other than uh, you know pure socialism, uh, certainly um, certainly a power grab, and something that is going to make inflation worse and not better.
0: I want to ask you about Texas, Senator, because you understand Texas politics extremely well. You've been operating in that sort of uh, sandbox here politically for quite some time. You just won reelection in 2020 by a comfortable margin. You ran ahead of a lot of the Republicans, including statewide. You're starting to see articles and news segments on various channels and in various newspapers about how the Democrats are suddenly getting very bullish about the governor election this fall. They feel like Beto O'Rourke might have a chance to actually win this. Now, the polling I've seen has Greg Abbott, the incumbent Republican, leading by Five or six points. That's been the case for a while. That's still a little close for comfort, but the Democrats seem to believe they're at least creating an impression that Beto has a chance to overtake Abbott and win in November, despite what is generally seen as a likely red wave type of year. What is your read on the governor's race right now? It seems like Abbott has been relatively quiet, at least nationally, in his media appearances and that sort of thing. Is the Beto bump real? Should the Abbott campaign be concerned? Should voters in Texas be taking this seriously?
4: Well, to answer the last question first is you should be concerned and you should take it seriously uh, because uh, Democrats are throwing everything they've got at red states like Texas because if they can flip Texas, then we'll never elect another Republican president, uh, certainly in my lifetime and so but this happens every couple of years but it is it is important that we not become complacent you pointed out that uh, that in 2020 I, I won by almost 10 points but my opponent was uh able to raise and spend uh roughly double of what i was able to raise and spend primarily because she got money from out-of-state small dollar donors which adds up very quickly and beto can take advantage of that same phenomenon. Uh, Greg Abbott's a prolific fundraiser, but Veto is able to raise a lot of money very quickly nationally uh, that he can't raise in Texas through uh, right ordinary, uh, what I would call regular uh, donor channels. So um, this is something we should take seriously. But I, I tell you one thing that I think Democrats have really dubbed their toe on, is they basically have alienated a lot of the the most important uh, significant single um, cohort of voters in Texas, and that is the Hispanic voters. Hispanic voters, in my experience, typically are culturally conservative, they're very family oriented, they tend to be more religious, they tend to be pro-life, and they're hard working, you know, middle class families. And almost everything that Joe Biden and the National Democratic Party and now Beto O'Rourke are advocating for is threatening to their way of life and their values. And that's the reason why I think they're going to lose.
0: Yeah. And also Beto O'Rourke ran a certain kind of campaign against Ted Cruz in 2018. Then he went and ran for president as a very different sort of Democrat, just letting his progressive flag fly. And now he's coming back to Texas and trying to pretend sort of like he's not that guy anymore. But this all has played out in the span of four years. We've seen all of it. It's all very recent. And Beto just, you know, yes, he can raise gobs of cash. He's doing it again. But he seems terribly out of step with where the people of Texas are in general. And I think that that certainly has to be an asset for Abbott.
4: That's you're exactly right. And, you know, this you're right. uh, 2018 was one strike. Uh, 2020 is two strikes. 2022 is three strikes and you're out. And I think that'll be the last we hear from Beto politically.
0: No, we'll see. It seems like he's addicted to running for office, so he might try to find out a way to come up with a fourth strike, maybe just, like, redefine a strikeout, just like the administration is redefining recessions. like, oh, no, actually it's, it's four strikes. It's five strikes now. Perhaps that'll be the next move for O'Rourke should he lose to Greg Abbott in November, which should not be taken for granted, But I tend to agree that that is the likeliest outcome for sure. And hopefully over the course of the campaign, when it really hits Labor Day and beyond, Abbott can start to draw some very stark contrasts. And, boy, they certainly exist in that race. Finally, Senator, sticking with the Texas theme, have you been following Mayor Bowser in D.C. and Mayor Adams in New York complaining about the small trickle of illegal immigrants showing up in their cities? They've been bused to D.C., from Texas and Arizona. Bowser's saying it's a humanitarian crisis. It is a tipping point, a breaking point. She's calling for the National Guard to be deployed to help. And Governor Abbott's saying, look, this is welcome to our reality, but just a a tiny sliver of our reality that we've been dealing with now for a year and a half plus at this point. It's interesting to see these Democratic mayors whining the way they are given the scope of the problem that they have not really experienced, that your state has, yet they both just dismissed out of hand Governor Abbott's invitation for them to come down to the border and actually see what's happening in Texas. I think they should have gone down, but maybe they were afraid they might learn something, and we certainly can't have that.
4: Yeah, it's, um, you know, what what happens at the border doesn't stay at the border, and Frankly, I wonder what they've been doing or thinking the last two years as we've seen an unprecedented flow of migrants, some three million border encounters since Joe Biden became president, um, flow across the border and be essentially placed courtesy of the federal government uh, with a, a family in the country and said, show up for your court hearing. Oh, by the way, it won't happen for four or five years And people act surprised when they don't show up. So this is a very well-organized, well-oiled machine by the criminal organizations that smuggle people, but also drugs into the United States. Last year alone, there were 108,000 people died of drug overdoses. Almost all of those come across the border. And, you know, people are now concerned again, again about crime waves. Well, the way those drugs are distributed in the United States is basically through networks of organized street gangs that are responsible for most of the gun violence and crime in communities all across the country. And I'm glad finally, after a couple of years, that uh, the mayor of New York and Washington, D.C. has has awakened, which means that Governor Abbott's and Governor's Ducey's strategy to try to get the attention of the people in a position who might be able to do something about it seems to be paying off.
0: Yeah, I mean I called it a stunt when it was first announced. Not that I was against it. I said, look, this is a stunt. They're trying to draw attention to it. They're trying to allow some of these blue city jurisdictions and leaders to feel just a fraction of what these border communities have been feeling now for quite a while. I just did not anticipate how successful of a stunt this would be to the point that you have these mayors crying uncle just a few, what, weeks or months into this. With not that many illegal immigrants, like 4,000 have shown up in Washington, D.C. from the border in these bus caravans. And Mayor Bowser's had enough already. And that's, as a number of Texans pointed out, roughly one good day at the border in Texas, 4,000 people arriving. So I think the point is being made and being made pretty powerfully in a way that even the Democrats can't fully ignore But it's interesting watching them twist and turn as they try to sort of explain their way out of it and try to turn it into an attack on Republicans as opposed to something of a self-own, which is what I think it is. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Senator, I know you're busy. Always appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Guy. Good to be with you. And we will step aside. We will come right back. It is the happy hour, a sad story, but an amazing legacy that we want to celebrate as soon as we come back. Stay tuned.
2: Fresh conservative talk Kai Benson show
0: was the voice of the legendary baseball broadcaster Vince Scully, who spent his career with the Los Angeles Dodgers, before that the Brooklyn Dodgers. That was his call of a 1988 iconic moment. Kirk Gibson pinch hit home run in game one of the World Series against Oakland. He hobbled to the plate, badly injured, and hit one out to right center. And Scully had a famous call on that home run and many others as well. A record-setting home run from Hank Aaron, the Don Larson World Series, perfect game. Vin Scully, an absolute mainstay in the world of sports broadcasting, beloved by Dodgers fans and just baseball fans everywhere. I'm not a Dodgers fan, but how can you not like and respect and treasure Vin Scully, who was a national treasure, and he died yesterday at the age of 94? He retired in 2016. His career was incredible. Understated, told wonderful stories, just a soothing voice that was the background of summer for so many fans for so many years, and he will be sorely missed by anyone who loves the game, especially in Southern California. I will leave you with Vin Scully briefly going off on a tangent on the air in his final year behind the mic, 2016 with a quick commentary about socialism cut 18
2: socialism
4: failing to work as it always does this time in venezuela you talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat and who do you think is the richest person in venezuela the daughter of
2: hugo chavez hello anyway owen 2
0: owen oh 2 back to baseball but well said vin scully and rest in peace It's the Guy Benson Show.
2: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. In our middle hour today, we had an interview with Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the upper chamber. It was wide ranging. We touched on a lot of different issues. Here is a taste of my conversation with Cocaine Mitch, uh, were you shocked by that? Do you feel, a lot of people give you credit, and I think it's deserved being a really sharp tactician, did you feel like maybe Manchin and Schumer got the better of you, maybe rolled you on this one?
5: No, I don't think so. I mean, because they could they could do this bill if they got their act together, wholly aside from what we do. We we have no ability whatsoever to, to thwart a reconciliation bill. If the Democrats get their act together, they can pass it. What was surprising was that Joe Manchin basically went back on everything he'd been saying publicly about what he would not do. Uh, they stuck this phony label on this uh, on this Manchin deal, calling it uh, an inflation uh, bill. It uh, doesn't do that. It has zero impact on inflation long term and actually increases inflation over the next two years. He insisted that it, reduce the deficit and we just got a cbo score saying it it actually increases the deficit over the next five years uh... this bill was unrelated to the chips bill this is a bill they could always have passed at any time if they had gotten their act together and the key to getting their act together was to get Manchin back on board and he ended up signing off on a bill that <laughs> basically uh goes against almost everything he had said both publicly and to us on the floor of the Senate 300,000 plus billion dollar new taxes on American jobs uh, particularly falling hard on American manufacturers a catalog of tax hikes and green boot doggles Democrats have wanted for years they just stuck a new name on and listen to this 80,000 new IRS, IRS agents to go after Middle class families and small businesses No, the surprise was uh, completely unrelated to the chips bill. The surprise was that Manchin would basically reverse his position on so many different things and agree to this kind
0: of deal. Now, Manchin has given a few interviews, including on our network at Fox, saying that it's just not true. It's a lie. What Republicans, including you specifically, are saying that there are new taxes or tax increases In the bill. I don't understand where he's coming up with that because you just look at the bill. Of course, there are tax increases in there on manufacturers and businesses, but he's trying to say this has nothing to do with taxes, not one penny of new taxes. Do you have any clue what he means by that or or what he's trying to convey with that? What he's
5: doing, guy? He's saying no new tax rate increases. That's true. But what they have done is shift the burden to people who actually pay the taxes by eliminating some of the legitimate preferences particularly that manufacturers have and uh, so the, so the question is where does the tax burden go it, it's playing with language the, the fact of the matter is the tax burden will add three hundred billion dollars of new tax burdens, in other words, people who actually pay it on American jobs. Do you follow me? Yeah, no, I
0: I I totally agree. Yeah, the rates don't change. That's true. The rates don't change, but that's not the only definition of a tax increase. If you're raising taxes on businesses, which is what they're doing unequivocally, that is a tax increase. And when you're counting on new revenue from that tax increase – that's a tax increase. I, I mean you can – you're being I think very generous calling it playing games with words. I think he's sort of engaged in some misinformation because he's not saying there are no tax rate increases. He's saying there are no tax increases at all, which is just demonstrably false on top of all the other issues that you've raised on the deficit, on inflation, even though they call it you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. that That is quite uh, a turn of flipping – the true meaning of language around on its head uh, as they're trying to do with the word recession right now over at the White House. Does this whole deal that Manchin made with Schumer, does it change your opinion of Joe Manchin at all?
5: Well, he's certainly not been a, uh, shall I say, consistent, Uh, not even recently consistent, because this deal that he cut with Schumer – Steps on virtually everything he said, both publicly and privately, as recently as in the, within the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's stunning to watch him try to explain all these reversals of positions in such a short period of time. Um, you know, Joe, in the end, got there on the $1.9 trillion so called rescue package last year that created 40 year inflation. And now that we are, by definition, in the middle of a recession, They want to raise taxes. That's the one thing you don't do in the middle of a recession.
0: Which is something he said in the past. You should never do it. Now he's doing it. He also finally admits that the rescue plan was a mistake. He said at the time it would not increase inflation. Of course it did. But he's saying we're not going to make the same mistake this time. I guess that remains to be seen. Last point on this bill and this this deal, this package, I asked you if you think that you got rolled by the Democrats. Let me turn that around a little bit. Do you think that Manchin is going to get rolled by Democratic leadership because some of the major concessions that he said that he won on permitting reform, on pipelines, pro-fossil fuel stuff, he's very excited about those things. But they're not actually in this bill. They would have to come in a later bill, and the Democrat leadership, they're telling him, don't worry, we're going to make it happen, we're going to attach it to must-pass stuff. But once that leverage is gone and they've gotten his vote for what all the progressives want – Do you think there's a chance that the concessions that they're promising him suddenly evaporate?
5: Yeah, I think it's overwhelming likelihood. Look, there's no way we could get rolled on a reconciliation bill. A reconciliation bill doesn't have any Republican support to begin with. Right. The the way they do this is to finally get their act together, and the reason they were able to get their act together is Manchin basically publicly reversed everything he's been saying both publicly and privately, the last two weeks.
0: That full exchange with U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of our free podcast, the whole show, every day, on demand, totally free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, there's a flavor of the summer, allegedly, and it's kind of a weird one, I have mixed feelings. We'll go around the horn when we return.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free. Well, I want to talk about food here in a moment. But first, one unresolved issue from producer Christine's vacation. We addressed a little bit yesterday her repeated snubbing of Wyatt, trying to get her on the show. She was supposedly on a boat, weeping Wyatt, reduced to tears, all of that. But, Christine, another thing that we had talked about before the vacation was you were openly toying with the idea of getting a tattoo while on vacation. And you indicated that, no, you ended up not following through. Why? And are you shocked by that? I didn't follow through? I'm not. Although sometimes you follow through with your worst ideas. So I was sort of thinking you might do it. Like selling my daughter's childhood house? home? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, did, did it just like not present itself, the opportunity? Did you have second thoughts about the idea in general? No,
1: I, I did not have second thoughts, but uh, my entire family, Bobby's side of the family, just really didn't want me to do this. Which is funny because they all have tattoos. I don't. Oh. Under- yeah, I mean, Bobby. Wait, has- so,
0: so what are they doing? Like, what's what's like the uh, Papa Don't Preach situation going on here? Like, if they all have their tattoos and they're urging you not to get one, are they saying we regret all of our tattoos? No, it's like a personal cautionary tale. So, so I don't no, get they, it. What's the they problem?
1: Lo- I, I love my sister in law has one on her foot that I love so much. Uh, Bobby has a full sleeve. Um, my father in law has a whole bunch. Um, they felt that I'm just not the person to have a tattoo. And they felt all of them equally said to me that they think that I would regret it. Bobby has said in the past that I'm not one to um hold on to things permanently. He's always joking around that he's surprised he's still around,
0: but i
1: i I still feel strongly about
0: this, so I well, you're like you're a fad girl, you get bored of things, you get obsessed with things, and then discard them quickly,
1: yes, yes, but I think I know what I'm getting into with the tattoo. I know exactly what I want. I know exactly where I want it. So I've decided, drumroll please, I've decided to wait and I'm going to get my first tattoo on the next Benson Retreat with my best friends.
0: In other words, you're not going to get a tattoo.
1: Why am I not invited to the next Benson Retreat? Oh Also, Um, I would like to rename it to the Cookie and Benson Retreat.
0: No, no. I think the thing is we were going to invite you on the retreat, but you were on a boat and you just – you couldn't get texts or calls or whatever. So it just sort of got lost in the shuffle. Sorry. But I I am sort of fascinated that a family filled with tattoos, like their bodies are all inked up, urging you not because they don't like their own tattoos, but urging you not to get one because it's not – your place, or you're not the type of person they envision having one. Which is. I just don't really get that. I don't, I don't either follow.
1: because I don't even know what kind of girl I am. So how would they know? <laughs> huh. I, I just. Do you. Could you see me with a tattoo? Yes. Something tasteful, very colorful.
0: No. no, I would say I'm actually surprised you don't have tattoos already and that they are not very. Distasteful is the wrong word, but gaudy, maybe? <laughs> what? Like sort of in the style of your home decor for holiday design, like similar type of thing.
1: I, I just want a pair of angel wings. Um, I have two places that I thought about, like just on my shoulder or maybe just like right on my wrist, but just something very tasteful. And they- You said it's
0: one wing, one angel wing for your for your father who passed away when you were young and the other angel wing for... Carousel? Don't do it. <laughs> well, it's a pair of wings, right? So it's not just a tribute to I'm one. I'm not
1: honoring carousel on my body, okay? I well, didn't like the pony. That would be know...
0: my artistic interpretation No, <laughs> of this, yeah. And maybe if you do it on the Benson Retreat, if we do this after all, and you come along and you go to the local tattoo parlor, With
1: I, could Wyatt. Like,
0: I could like slip the tattoo artist like a 20 and be like, Add a little pony. It's like a little (laughs) pony right there. Or like R-I-P-C, and we all know what that means. Maybe that's not a bad idea. So will you go with me? Or are you going to send Wyatt? I think I might send Wyatt with instructions and cash. (laughs) Like, why don't you dare come back without an accomplished mission.
1: I think this is going to happen. We'll, we'll talk about it. Once we get the Cookie and Benson retreat, you know, the time, the the on place, the, books. the date okay. on the books. Um, obviously, I'm not hosting it, but it's still my name should lead it,
0: I feel. Oh, I mean, you're definitely not hosting it. If you were hosting something, we would not be invited because that's typically how that goes. No rebuttal. No response there from Cookie. She knows. She knows what's up. Wyatt is just chuckling over here across the glass. Well, the story that we wanted to get to, the original plan, I kind of went rogue here, was to talk about this New York Times story about how the big in flavor this year, this summer, 2022's hottest trend is pickle. From pizza to dip to chips and popcorn, pickle is summer's big flavor. And I just want to say... As a big fan of pickles. Dill pickles, chilled. What's the brand that I love? Clausen, I think is what it's called, with that green top. I love pickles with burgers, with sandwiches, with barbecue. I am totally on board. I like the bread and butter pickles less, but I'll still eat them. They just enhance a whole, especially lunch experience. It's like a sandwich is so much better with a crisp pickle. Preferably at least two skewers. Anyway, I'm not sure I want pickle-flavored things. I don't need pickles on my pizza. I would be open to a pickle-flavored dip. Chips, not necessary. Popcorn, not necessary. Again, it's like the opposite for me and coffee. I don't like to drink coffee, but I like coffee-flavored things. I like to eat pickles, but I don't think I want pickle-flavored things. And, Christine, we were talking about this earlier on the call, and you took the opportunity to remind all of us of one of the very odd eating habits that you have, which caused another round of revulsion from Wyatt and Dan who were just roasting you. You're obsessed with pickle juice and pouring it on stuff, right?
1: Yes, and this wasn't even just a pregnancy, you know, a craving. This was something I've been doing since I was young. I take the pickle jar – With the juice, I get a nice bowl of, like, you know, the ridges, the chips. I pour the juice all over the chips. Dan, And I let it sit, like, soak
0: up, and then I eat it. That's disgusting. Oh, it's delicious. We've we've, we've talked about this before. This is not the first time you've confessed this on the air, but how can I just let it slide? The good part of a potato chip is the crisp. And if you douse it in any kind of liquid, it gets... Like pulpy and disgusting, and wet. It's like it's like a flaccid potato chip, tasting like pickle. That's disgusting. I, I have a
1: pl- I have a way that I do it that the chip is soggy from the pickle juice, yet crispy Ugh. at the same time. So it's it's the direction of how you pour. You know, each chip has to have a little pickle juice. Not the whole chip needs to have pickle juice. I feel like I've gone on no. way too long about this now. Just
0: eat pickles. With your potato chips, don't pour the juice on. And then you said you love the juice so much that you actually dry out the pickles themselves because you use up the juice before the pickles are consumed, which is also the wrong way to do it. I feel like at least wait until the pickles are gone and then use the juice for your disgusting, unnatural purposes.
1: I have uh, one last confession. Mm, Boy. I also drink pickle juice just straight. Like I pour a shot of it after a night of some Heavy's Mama's juice because it's uh, –
0: People do that. Yeah, it's a People really, do that or they also – hair of the dog. Do you ever do pickle juice with booze to sort of recover the next day? Because pickle shots are a thing.
1: Believe it or not, I've never – I don't do hair of the dog. I just – if I'm so. done with alcohol and I don't feel good the next day, I'm not about to put more into my body. Shocker.
0: Well, I I would not encourage you to change that approach in your life. I think there's enough problems, but maybe not even as hair of the dog. Like on the night out, would you consider a pickle juice shot with some vodka or vodka, as you would call it? Consider it. It's been done. Yes. Oh, it has been. All right. So you've had pickle shots. That's the point. Just not the next day during mama's hangover.
1: I don't like to call it, I'm 41. I don't like to say I have hangovers anymore. Oh, it's a hangover. When I just oh, it's
0: absolutely a hangover. And they get off. worse as you get older. I tell this me actually, about actually, Yeah, like it helps me be a more responsible person because my body's like, no, you can't do that anymore. Maybe when you were 21, 22, 23, yeah. A couple nights in a row, go out, carouse, all the things. Now it's like maybe one night a week and you're, we're done here. Because that's what happens when you get old. And, you know, you, of course, are much older than I am. So I can only imagine that it must be more intense on your end. I mean, that's what I'm hearing here.
1: I'm still working at it.
0: (laughs) All right. We got to run back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson show. It'll be Thursday already. Thank you very much for tuning in. We will talk to you then. Have a great night.